0: This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Ullman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, Bard MBA's Camila Leal speaks with Molly Brown, Chief Science Officer of Sixth Grade.
1: Good morning and welcome, Molly. I am um, delighted to have you here. And just to get us kind of started, you know, I, I really like getting to know people maybe from their childhood, right? Like, what is it about Molly that kind of drove you here today? And you know, what memories, what was your upbringing like, you know, anything that you like to share um, from your life experience that kind of, you know, made you who you are today?
2: I grew up in Connecticut and I have, I grew up on a dairy farm, which was a five generation dairy farm, a thousand acre dairy farm in Stonington, Connecticut. And so, you know, I studied biology as an undergrad. And then when I was done with my bachelor's degree I got a job in industry and then I decided I wasn't ready to like settle down. So I went into the Peace Corps into Senegal as a Peace Corps volunteer. And I thought, you know, I know I got this agriculture thing down. I've been, you know, I know all about farming. Sure. You know, when I went to Senegal, I realized I do not know anything about farming from in other contexts outside of New England, how incredibly complex the decisions are, the price drivers, the investment, the role of infrastructure and a thousand other things. It was just incredible. The role of the climate and the uh, ecology and the culture and the development trajectory People have been farming in Senegal for over 10,000 years, right? I mean, before even the dawn of modern agriculture, they were herding and doing controlling their environment in the savannah so much longer than New England, which has only been like, you know, a couple hundred years. So, needless to say, when I came back, I went to graduate school and I've been studying agriculture ever since. So the only other thing I would say is that after I was a civil servant actually at NASA, so I had a fantastic job, but then I decided to retire from NASA or to leave NASA in 2015 and to join University of Maryland so I could get a much broader access to a lot broader um, funding streams from NSF and from USAID and other organizations like that and Sixth Grain, because I have two hats, I still do research, but I also work with Sixth Grain. And the reason I work with Sixth Grain is because, you know, farming is not a volunteer activity. It isn't an academic pursuit. It is all about making money. Everyone wants to make money from the farmer to the retailer, the whole, you know, everybody's trying to make money. And so if you do not understand the corporate side of things, you're just not going to be, you just have no idea what's going on. Right. And so it's been gigantically educational and super interesting.
1: Got it. So was your pursuit always sort of like following that academic pursue more so than, um, than your like mission for agriculture or What, like, what was it like for you? Like, what were you, what was your North Star, you know, throughout these years as you kind of kept pursuing the academic side?
2: I am, uh, I mostly am interested in how climate and weather affects production and livelihoods for rural residents. So it's that whole climate um, productivity connection using, Satellite remote sensing observations in a way which allows us to diagnose understand and predict the impact of changes in weather and climate on rural livelihoods across the spectrum, so I studied food security for many years, which is sort of at the uh, you know country region level. I then transitioned into individual, understanding individual outcomes and how uh, climate affects nutrition outcomes of children under five. So I have 10 or 15 papers at this point, looking at using satellite data together with nutrition data at the individual level to better understand how um, climate shocks, big droughts, floods, hot periods affect, nutrition outcomes? How do they affect feeding decisions? How do they affect child mortality underweight, right? And so I have a whole area with that, but it, it, that whole research area does not help you actually do anything in the real world. It's still supposed to be, it's still like six steps separated from actual decision-making, from um, an individual that affects the real person in the real world. That's what's exciting about six grain is that we can deliver solutions directly on a phone. We can take um, the satellite data, transform it into relevant data products, and deliver it. And the thing six grain allows me to have access to that infrastructure, The, the whole, you know, from soup to nuts, right? And we actually delivering new data and information to new people with our technology. So, I mean, it's a totally different intervention,
1: right? Got it. Before I kind of deep dive into Sixth green, I, I do want to ask you, what has been the most interesting sort of finding throughout your research and your time studying this topic? Um, maybe things that you probably, you know, you yourself were surprised to find. Um, yeah, I've done so many different things. I'm such an old person. It's really, <laughs> it's hard
2: for me even to figure out all the different papers I've written myself so for me what I'm doing now is I'm doing a lot of new research on decision support how do we in other words you would think right I don't know maybe you wouldn't think because you're a millennial you're of a certain age where you know you have this totally different engagement with information you hear that you get Um, but for me, I'm really fascinated by how the, the way we can make information delivered to somebody salient, reliable and actionable. It's so much harder than you would think. It's so interesting to me about how do we transform, uh, you know, a real piece of information in, and deliver it to somebody in a way which makes sense, is timely, accurate and reliable, right? And is delivered in a way which can really change the outcome. That is where I'm focusing a lot of my efforts right now. So I get funding from NASA to work with their own, their community to better understand how data is delivered and can really change things, make real societal impact, right? So the question is, How do you do that? It's, it's, yeah. you can have an app, right? You can Google something, but will that really change your decision? How do you connect with people in a way which really changes the outcome? So these things are so much harder. So that's really, for me, one of the most important outcomes of my work is how darn hard that is. It's like, who wants to study something obvious and simple, like, figuring out what a drought is. Now that's simple, right? Figuring out what a drought is, anticipating that drought, understanding the impacts in society, and then warning people about it so they make better decisions in the agriculture space or in the health space, infrastructure, all sorts of things should be affected by that biophysical instance that we totally fail to connect. You know, we don't we just say, hey, there's a drought and nobody is like, yeah, yeah, there's always a drought Molly, stop whining on about it, right? How do we connect those, um, those, those critical messages to the people and the times and the places when they need them to improve outcomes, reduce vulnerability, risk, um, and, uh, and make sure that people
1: thrive even in challenging times, basically. Okay. I love that. From that, there's two big questions here. So in one hand, what is the biggest challenge over time? Would you say today? What is the biggest challenge over time? And then the second question is, what is your current biggest challenging in your role? And I think you might've might've alluded to that a little bit. And then what is the opportunity that we have through the next 10 years to get that information to the right hands? To make the right decisions since we are in a time crunch.
2: So right now there's a tension between the short and the long term, right? If we were, if we had an appropriate culture, right? If our culture valued the long-term gain over the short-term reward. But I really believe right now we have so much to learn about um about how to balance the need to meet the needs of people today with the longer term um, sustainability. And in fact, the word sustainability is extraordinarily squishy. What does that mean exactly? You know, and so, and for and food and the food system transformation is a big one, right? So I'm investing in, um, I'm I'm doing a special, writing a paper right now on food system transformations. And we're looking at, for example, what's the impact if half as much beef was consumed globally? How would you, you, what impacts would that have on the global food system, right? So that short-term, I'm not gonna eat a hamburger today decision by every individual can be driven by policy and by pricing and by tax and all sorts of other things. But it's really hard to balance that short-term, uh, the you know the short-term response with the longer-term need, right? So how do we transition all of those people who are currently employed in the you know in the cattle industry and in the that you can imagine all of those people? There's hundreds of thousands of them who are involved in cattle and producing beef and you know and selling beef and all of the secondary and tertiary processing and packaging, retail, restaurants, advertising, you can imagine how many people that would be, right? So when we're transitioning away from something that we know is not good for the planet to something which is better for the planet, it requires so many moving parts. And the same thing could be said for fossil fuels and um, you know, uh, inexpensive energy, cold chain, where the roads go, right? What about ports? Uh, Yeah, so all of these things are extremely difficult to to balance between the short and the long-term. And I think that's really our challenge right now because we see very clearly, we cannot continue on as business as usual, but how do we change? What are the myriad decisions that we need to make? The individual at the business, society, you know, government and policy finance to move this gigantic economic juggernaut in the right direction, right? So that I think is the big challenge. Um, regarding six Grain, you put in one of your questions about, that you sent me about why I, why I think that six Grain is, in a crowded, you know, market for ag tech, why I'm working, you know, there are hundreds, if not thousands of other agricultural technology, digital startups. But even then, I feel no one is using remote sensing data. It's like you have thousands of companies who are working on transforming satellite data into information, yet nobody is using it. Nobody is using it. Like between the growers and the retailers and the, you know, the all of the crop input providers, getting them to use information on climate and weather is gigantically hard. You would be amazed by how few people use the information. They just say, well, I mean, I can't control the weather, so I'm just going to continue on like I always have, right? So that is why I have great hope. So not only is the, you know, the ag tech sector growing by 10% a year, one of the reasons for that is because it's still only, you know, five or 10% of, of farmers in the world and maybe only like 10 or 15% in the United States use agricultural, you know, use tools which have satellite information embedded in them very very few you would be amazed most people just say they call up their friends and say well i heard this thing and what should i do and then they do what everybody else does so they all like move but they don't really use the technology and the the predictions or the you know the weather challenges to make better decisions right they don't use it now. So that's why I think that there's the a giant. It's still blue sky, right? There's huge amounts of opportunity.
1: And when you say they, they don't use it, by they, you mean the farmers, correct?
2: I mean, everybody in the agriculture sector. So we have, you know, we have the input providers who are upstream. Then we have the retailers and distributors. Then you have the farmers who produce the goods, and then you have the storage, like the the, um, the uh, grain elevators, those guys. I was just looking today, how could a grain elevator use satellite remote sensing? We could predict, for example, how wet the grain is, and how what is the likelihood that they're going to need X amount of propane or Y amount of propane, right? How much propane are they likely to need to do drying to get the grain to the level which is acceptable in order to sell it on to the market right right now they just guess or they just use what they can instead we could use data analytics to figure out what are the weather conditions what's the maturity of the grain you know when they harvest you can see that from space we can tell the the probability of this amount of moisture or that amount of moisture in each of the grain and then we could then predict that out a couple of weeks and then those grain elevators can not only predict how much propane they might need but they could also get futures contracts when the price is going up or you know or when they're going down they could they could buy as late as possible right so there's tons of work that could be done to use analytics in for that part of the industry right And then after the green elevators, you have the traders, and then you have the the processing and packaging to make your corn into Doritos, right? And then after that, you have the retailers and the supermarkets and then the consumers. So each one of those segments have different pain points and data needs that information about weather, climate, demand, supply, and other parts of the ag sector can be useful, right? So it's not just farmers.
1: Got it. And so what do you think it's the bottleneck, right? Like what is preventing them from actually utilizing the data that's available today?
2: So there's two major reasons. First, inertia. We do things the way we do things and it, you know, um, and frankly, you have to invest a huge amount of money in order to change your process, how you make decisions today, to a process which incorporates a new piece of information to make the process better to make efficiency into increase efficiency. So that's that investment requires knowledge and information and all sorts of drivers which are very hard to um, uh, you know it, to overcome a lot of inertia. So the way the industry works now, and it also, it might be that you have to spend a hundred thousand dollars to save 5,000 and that, but over time you can transform the industry and then you end up, after you spend that hundred thousand you could save a million over time, but you know how it is, right? So it's, if you don't have that hundred grand it's really hard to invest it, right? The other thing in my opinion is that if you don't have people as in the food system engaging with weather and climate and other information, then we don't have that exposure of the training data. We need to transform our radiance that we get from the satellite into real actionable information, right? So essentially all I get out of the satellite is radiance or a photon or some darn, You know sort of biophysical observation how deep is the cloud what's the probability of rain what's the temperature of this land surface that is useless to everybody including the so what we need to do is to take the training data so for my previous example i was talking about moisture the probable moisture of the grain as it gets harvested to get that, we need to know what the moisture was in the last five years across a variety of instances and weather conditions. So we need to have observations in order to do training, in order to transform our radiances into a, through a model into the piece of information the elevators need, right? guess the good news is that those grain elevators have that information, right? They know where all their grain came from. They know how much, you know, blah, blah, blah. They know how wet each thing was, you know, because they usually charge the the grower for some of that drying facility. They know how much money they spent. So if they really knew and understood that we could have such a model, they would share that information with us. We would put it into a model in a sort of anonymized and um, secure way, transform their currently useless data that just sits on their server, literally doing nothing through our model and our use of satellite data and predictive analytics and all the rest of it into a piece of information they could use, right? All of that takes so much effort. You have no idea. First of all, where's the data and, oh, finding it and collating it, organizing it, right? And then sharing it, getting everyone to agree that it's not too scary, Sharing the information, and then everyone has to agree to change their process to take to use the output. So, this is classic machine learning challenges, right? You have to change everything in your organization in order to transform data into information, right? And the satellite remote sensing is a fantastic free resource, but it takes a lot of effort to use it, right? So from my perspective, it's totally worth doing. And the more the climate changes and the more extreme events happen and the more the food system is put under pressure, the more likely it is that these that people want to be warned. But it's still going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of relationships and trust building and, you know, Interviews like this to get people to realize that they can, we can anticipate a lot of the challenges happening in the food system and with farmers and um, other decision makers. It just is going to require engagement, huge amounts of engagement.
0: The Impact Report is brought to you by the Bard Graduate Programs in Sustainability offering both hybrid and in-person degrees in environmental policy, climate science and policy, environmental education, and sustainable business. BARD offers scholarships for all applicants who qualify and enrolls new cohorts each fall. Learn how to apply at gps.bard.edu.
1: Is there there an opportunity that you're seeing today um, that you've not seen over the past five, 10, 20 years, how long you've done this work that you think is advantageous for SixScreen and how are you leveraging that?
2: Oh, there's huge opportunities. So first of all, we have so much satellite data, we don't even know what to do with it all, right? So it's not only more often, it's finer resolution, more data types, more people investing in agriculture and in um, information products for agriculture. I also think that um, as we learn more about how to use information to transform the way uh, farmers are doing things, we can then expose these changes to bring more money down to the people who are currently not in, who are currently have the least amount of power. From my perspective that are those are farmers, rural institutions who are extremely impoverished compared to the input providers or the traders, right? So we have the power centers in a lot of the food system are on people who are providing those improved seeds the you know the chemicals the fertilizers they have all the control and they're able to charge what the market will bear and the farmers have had a flat income adjusted for inflation most farmers with the exception of the top five percent growers who have economies of scale but everyone else 95 percent of farmers in the united states have not gotten a raise a real raise Since you know 1950 or so, you can look up the statistics. But essentially, those guys, and then after the production of the of the um, of the commodity, the traders, the ones who are transforming, processing, and packaging, those are also vertically integrated. Where they give a you know, Frito Lay, for example, gives a contract to the potato grower they get an amount of money which allows them to make, what, 20 grand a year, literally, right, after all the expenses, and then Frito-Lay uses that to make billions in profit, right, and they, they are totally vertically integrated, they have everything from the storage, the trucking, the processing, the packaging, the advertising, and the distribution of those products, right, and so that way they're able to capture the all of the profit across all of those segments. So, if we can become truly sustainable and provide information directly to the grower or to the, for example, the trucker or all of those the, the, the smaller parts, we can contribute to climate warmth. Like, for example, soil carbon credits or reductions in methane or changes in fertilizer or changes in the way those growers do things so that we can improve our, not only reduce the climate footprint of growers, but increase their profitability enormously, right? You can imagine how information might greatly reduce independence on fertilizer, allow them to make better decisions which crop should they grow? Should they take that contract from Free Delay, or should they grow you know, artichokes and sell them directly to people who want them, right? If you cut out all those middlemen, you could grow, grow carrots and you could ship the carrots directly to all the people who want carrots across the country using direct farmer to consumer. You can imagine a totally different food system using mobile phones, right? You could imagine that. The question is, how do we do it, right? And how do we move the powers from the, how do we like use technology to modernize the agriculture system and increase the income of the the rural livelihoods in a way which really benefits everybody instead of just the corporate powers that be, right? That's really one of our goals.
1: Uh, well, coming, I think that's, this is a very me common, but that's very, very interesting to me. How do we empower, I think, in today's day and age, th- those, that, that portion of society that truly is the most critical to our survival as a civilization, but yet they're the ones that are being um, underpaid and undercut from every direction and For someone like me, and again, I think given that this podcast would be for students, for MBA students like myself, undergraduate students, and students across different parts of the world, including the U.S., what advice would you have for for this generation, right? Um, How do we we make that happen um, from your perspective today? Um,
2: For me, it's being willing to make mistakes. You got to screw it up many many times, right? And to be very, uh, you're from you know sixth grade. We have experimented for five or six years now. We've we've done demonstrations. We've we've you know we want to produce a lot of different sort of. Uh, uh, we want to. Do many, many things to see what will work and who it will work for, right? And you have to be willing to fail. You have to be willing not to be perfect. You have to do a lot of demonstrations of your idea until you can figure out how to do it right. The other thing is to focus on your audience, right? We started, sixth grade started by working directly with the input provider, where the power structures are, Right. And one of the reasons that we we argue that why you why would those big input providers like Syngenta and Corteva and BASF, why would they spend money on satellite data and information products is because they would then get insight into all of those growers who are below their top 5% where they know everything. Basically, we want to grow the pie. We want to understand how to access and provide better service and better advice to people lower down in the, in the you know, who are less technologically savvy. And the same thing goes for growers or, you know, uh, supermarkets. Why do they always have to take the easy path? They can do, you know, we can give away information It's basically what we've done. We give away the day. We're like, take it, have a look, play with it, use it. It's free, you know, let us know how it goes. And so in that way, we're willing to take on the risk ourselves to get that two-way conversation, to grow the relationship. The other thing is, is that um, across all of these things, it's about relationships. It's about having trust and, and understanding and valuing how people, what information they need and why they need it and what accuracy. Sometimes, you know, it's like, it doesn't have to be very accurate. It can be terrible from my science perspective, but you know, it's so much better than nothing, right? Which is how people make decisions today. They just are totally like, oh, really? There's a drought going on in X and Y place? I didn't hear that. I was like, dude, where have you been? (laughs) Like, so, so I mean, that willingness to put up with imperfection is so hard, um, but it's so necessary, right? In in order to support people, you need to take a risk and to grow those relationships and have trust that, you know, we're not going to sell them a giant elephant, if all they need is a small little mouse, right? So we are totally willing to have little tiny mouses, right? And then add them all up across a whole bunch of different clients, right? So it's, and I think that um, the other thing is, is that to be prudent, Uh, when I was in academia and I was like, oh boy, I can go work with Six Crane, I'll have business travel. Are you kidding me? It's the cheapest organization on the (laughs) planet. It's like you have no idea what i've done it's just we're just so cheap <laughs> pinching every penny until it screams so that we have more resources to go further to build our, the trust and the relationships in order to not have to take loans not have to take investment we don't need right not get into that whole like you have to increase by five thousand percent in the next five years give yourself a little space critical for success so it's sort of all
1: there's a lot in there and I know we don't have a ton of time left but I do want to pick on one of the things you said which is really interesting um, in terms of like taking chances and failing what is your biggest failure and what did you learn from that experience and I'm sure like all all of us have had many but if you could choose maybe the one that you probably benefited the most from
2: um, gosh, I can't even tell you how many research papers that I have failed on. <laughs> but uh, I think a better example here is to is to really, um, you know, go in with a positive attitude to every meeting that I have. That's the thing about sixth grade; we're constantly talking to people. And saying, sure, we can create a model for thrips in Egypt using your five data points. No problem. The reality is, I have no idea how to do that. I mean, none. And the person who I'm talking to doesn't know if they can use the information either. And so I'm constantly, um, you know, even if our data product is literally does not exist when we're talking to people. We're constantly putting ourselves out there to see if we can start the conversation so that when, if they do decide they want my great threat product, product, which didn't exist when I talk with them, right? Then I can hustle and make it happen, right? 90% of these conversations are failures, wastes of time. They do not result in a thrip project. You know, they are, it's just not, it's because either on their side, they can't change, they can't convince their management. I'm unable to come up with a magical thrip model, you know, a project, a model for a particular pest in a particular place. We might fail on that side. But when you do get traction and we're able to provide useful, credible, timely, actionable information to the right people, magic happens. So you, for me, there's just so much failure in all of this. You have to be willing to go to all these conversations and say, sure, I can do this thing and t- with a straight face and knowing full well, I have no idea how to do this thing, right? But I am sure somebody knows, And I can find out, right? So I can look in the literature, I can do a model, I can hire somebody who knows. 50 ways of succeeding, but it won't ever work unless you can get that person who's gonna receive it to work with you to receive it and then give you feedback and have that iteration, right? So there's so much failure. I mean, you just, there's just business in general and even like doing research in the scientific realm, I always try 10,000 things and I publish the three things that work. (laughs) I don't mention the 9,997 things that did not work, literally. You know, you flail around for years until you get a really great idea. And so it's just part of life. You just have to be willing and positive. And um, I think that uh, it's really worth doing though, because, it, once you get it right, it, it just is such a great success. And it makes, you know, I think that it's, it's a fantastic, uh, it's, it has a huge impact. I think it can. Right?
1: Awesome. So that, that, that's really, um, it's really true. Very true. And, and I'm glad it applies to that level as well. I guess just to close us off, what is your vision for Sixth Grain? Um, And and any other thoughts that you kind of want to share just as we wrap up here um, that you kind of want to leave behind?
2: Right. So I don't know where Sixth Grain will end up. I know that it has been extremely great vehicle for me to learn about how to engage across all the different ways satellite remote sensing can be used. I do think that... um, we will i think it's likely that you know we will bring a very large suite of expertise and and capabilities to somebody when when um we find the right audience but i i do think that what i want to do is to try to bring the technology and the data sets which currently that top five percent of growers have access to those farmers who make more than a several million dollars a year, right? To the literally millions of farmers out there who make $1,000 a year or $10,000 a year, right? So to more democratize the information and to deliver it to many more people, to grow the pie, right? The information technological change and to really um, digitize the agriculture industry. That's one of our objectives. We have many um, opportunities to do that. And I don't expect sixth grain to be the last one. I'm hoping to get into carbon and um, uh, using technology to transform uh, grow to basically take from the financial sector data, funding from the financial sector and the financial markets and deliver it to growers who are willing to change their practices to reduce nitrous oxide and methane and increased carbon sequestration, right? And so that sort of direct payment structure is a really where I'm hoping to go in the next uh, couple of years.
1: Okay. So I guess um, as the last question for the podcast, um, how can people learn more about you and six grain and and perhaps be in touch with you Um, and anyone like myself or anyone that would be interested from a, from a business perspective how how could someone reach out reached out if um
2: right so i am on linkedin i'm an active linkedin user so you can certainly find me there i also have a university website and email that i encourage you all university of maryland department of geographical sciences so i post my most recent papers there as well as on linkedin and i um uh, and i certainly respond to i'm very liberal in my linkedin group um so basically that is the best way email and um through social networks such as linkedin yep. and also you know sixgrain.com you can look at the the uh, website
0: We appreciate our loyal Impact Report listeners and hope you can help us spread the word about the series and the important sustainability work of our guests. Please rate and review the Impact Report wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you were inspired by this conversation, share a screenshot on Instagram and tag Impact Report Podcast. About Six Grain by visiting SixGrain.com. And be sure to head to GreenBiz.com or ImpactEntrepreneur.com to read a recap of our conversation. Join us for the next episode of The Impact Report on Friday, May 13th. We'll be speaking with David Litsky of Fast Company. in learning how you can launch a high-impact purpose-driven career in sustainability? Check out the resources page from the BARD Graduate Programs in Sustainability for access to free resources to jumpstart your career. Hear from leaders in the fields of climate change, consulting, impact finance, circular economy, and more about how they launched their careers and the tips they have for you to join their industry. Visit gps.bard.edu slash resources today.